Welcome to Decades From Home, a podcast about the weird and wonderful side of living in Germany. And all without saying, Fängs du mittags an zu saufen, kannst du abends nicht mehr laufen. I'm Nick Houghton of 40percentgerman.com and I'm joined by my co-host Simon Maddox, whose hobbies include growing beards and chugging beers. How are you, Simon? Yeah, I'm doing all right, doing all right, thanks. We're setting up for some alcohol uh, in this episode, it seems. It's not the key theme for us today, but we're going to break the ice with some lovely beer chat. Yeah, of course. It's the place to start. Actually, the place I really want to start with the podcast is a weird thing that you mentioned in a chat earlier this week. Mint sauce is always a topic of interest for Germans. They can't yeah. fully understand why mint sauce is such a prized delicacy among the British. And... Uh, we- we were talking about your dinner plans, and you said that you would have mint sauce with beef, and I assumed that was a joke, but now I'm beginning to wonder if that's actually the case. I mean, I wasn't planning on having the mint sauce on the beef directly, but if if that happened, I would have no problem with it. But the mint sauce, it works with everything. It goes on the roast potatoes. That's that is my not favorite. true. That's my favorite part, the roast potatoes and mint sauce. It goes great with runner beans. Um, it works. It works with broccoli. Like all the vegetables I make roast with, they all taste good with mint sauce. Now, this is the interesting thing here because you appear to be a roast traditionalist of the highest order. <laughs> I am. And I think you need to you need to break away from the chains of bondage when it comes to what goes with what on a roast dinner. What is the problem with having mint sauce and beef? The way you've outlined it there makes a hell of a lot of sense. <laughs> and I know that peas are often mixed with mint. Mm-hmm. Like so, I can get that. I'm a little bit skeptical about the mint sauce and roast potatoes, but oh, it's so good! It really is so good. Everyone's got their uh, their peccadillos, right? But um, uh-huh. beef and mint sauce just objectively does not go together. Those that's it does, a combination. It's just a combination of things that does not go together. Mustard, sure, mm-hmm. have at you. I understand as well that I'm incredibly inconsistent with my mixing of different food products. Cheese and Stalin. So I'm I'm going to I'm going to take a step back and have an open mind and you're going to have to explain to me how the hell you came up with that combination is that like some kind of family recipe or is that like an, a happy accident or what No no not at all no it's it's just I don't care like mint sauce is just if if mint sauce is available and there's a roast I'm going to add the mint sauce to that roast chicken beef lamb pork I'm going to have mint sauce on my plate if it's available now I am going to differentiate between mint sauce and mint jelly because mint jelly I wouldn't use but mint sauce because it's basically vinegar and mm-hmm. and mint it's the vinegar flavor it's that that sour that bite that's where that's where the magic happens, I think. And that's what it, that's what works with all of these vegetables. You need to try some proper vinegary mint sauce on your roast potatoes. I, I guarantee you, you'll like it. You like mint sauce with lamb, therefore you like mint sauce. It will work. You'll be a happier man. I mean, this all stems originally from uh, when we were meeting for our last roast together mm-hmm. with our friend Stu, and he had requested Yorkshire mm-hmm. puddings. And because of your, your traditionalism, you, you were kind of slightly perturbed at the idea of doing Yorkshire puddings when it wasn't going to be beef. I feel that's a bit of fake news because I would always eat Yorkshire puddings with pretty much anything. <laughs> like if you just said, like, let's have Yorkshire puddings on their own, I'd eat them. I'd have no problem. I, I, I like the idea okay. of, I thought it was funny that he thought that Yorkshire puddings would go with chicken. They go with everything. I don't think he did ultimately, but I did like the idea that somehow in, in sort of Scotland, there was a misconception about 
what Yorkshire puddings went with. So that was fun. But they go with everything. Like, obviously, the beef and Yorkshire pudding is the, the classic. That's, that's the one that everyone sort of reverts to. But, of course, one of the main things that's done with the, the, the batter of a Yorkshire pudding, when it's not a Yorkshire pudding, is you make toad in a hole. And toad in a hole, for those that don't know, is sausages baked in this tag and the, the batter like rises up and around mm-hmm. the sausages mm-hmm. it crisps up you pour gravel over so they go pork mm-hmm. so why not chicken like, it, it worked we we know it worked it was delicious i mean it was i and of course it's yorkshire pudding so it's going to be good <laughs> i don't know i just i guess it's i guess it's just like i'd try it I think I'll, I'll try it and i'll tell you i think that's the best i can offer you because ultimately that's fine um the uh, <laughs> It's like some kind of transaction. It's the best I can offer you is that I'll try it. Um, it it just seems it seems like it won't go together, like cranberry um, jelly and turkey, but cranberry jelly and beef. Yeah, but you're comparing sweet and sour now, and that, of course that doesn't work. But if you can think of another sour, sort of acidic, biting sauce, that would work. But yeah, cranberry, I'm only putting on on geflugel uh, has to have wings for the for the cranberry to work <laughs> has to have wings. although although actually no cranberry and sausage i think that would work quite nicely a little I sweet with, with right. the pork sausage pork, i suppose i guess the the issue i probably have isn't one of being a a uh, roast dinner pedant <laughs> it's rather that i think you have more roast dinners than i do which gives you more <laughs> opportunity for experimentation whereas i have maybe four roast dinners a year and if that's if that's how many I'm actually having, I would be very traditional about it uh-huh. because I'm not going to get one next, like the next one I might get six months' time. So that's probably why I'm being a bit of a stick in the mud about it. Yeah, I'm doing four a month at the moment. So yeah, I'm definitely. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so maybe, maybe that's what I need to do is just up my roast dinner intake. And then I can feel more comfortable with the experimentation. There are a couple of reasons for me. I mean, one of the things is that mint sauce, the vinegary mint sauce, the the, the the liquidy mint sauce is something that my granddad made. We always had homemade mint sauce. And so it's a flavor that, just rem- that literally transports me back uh, to Telford mm. visiting my grandparents. And so there's something very, something very nice and nostalgic about that flavor for me. But it's also because obviously to get things from Britain these days post-brexit is very very expensive and so gone are the days of just buying a, a jar of branston pickle a tin of coleman's yeah like yeah. you can get those things but you have to either be willing to pay double or triple or you have to get lucky and i i ordered three things of mint sauce when i found the chance where it was reasonable mm. and so it's just something that adds authenticity to any roast i do like I'm, I'm cooking in Germany with, with German products. Obviously, it's not a big difference between a German potato and a British one. But as soon as I slap some mint sauce on that plate, it becomes very much an English roast. And I think that's that's what I like about it the most. I mean, you say that about the potatoes, but I had like a potato, not crisis is probably too extreme, <laughs> but I had a potato issue last week where I bought the wrong potatoes. Yeah, that's possible. Yeah, yeah. And what there's two different types of potato you could buy in Germany. Festkochend. That's it. And uh, Mehlig. Right. And I think I bought Mehlig. Yeah, that's horrible. In fact, I'm almost certain, right? And my wife was like, you can't do things with these yeah. potatoes that you can do with the other ones. And I was like, what are the, the fucking potatoes? Like, <laughs> but I realized the reason, like, I, honestly, I still believe that. And 
Uh, they're just potatoes, aren't they? I mean, like what? This is this is very much a tell me you've never been to Peru. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Like, there are there are hundreds of varieties of potatoes, and obviously we have these two schools in Germany, Festkochen and Mehlig. But yeah, there's there are things you can and can't there's, do with. There's it three sure. types of potatoes, Simon. There's there's big potatoes, there's small potatoes, <laughs> and there's there's um, sweet potatoes. There's the three potatoes. I don't know what everyone's getting so so troubled about ultimately so what did you try to make with the wrong potato and did it work and all i remember is the argument i don't remember the outcome which <laughs> tells me a lot about why whether the potato issue was really an issue or not i also thought that maybe the reason was the name it's not that it's in german but you have like is it prince edwards yeah prince edwards yeah right so like that's the kind of potato like you that's how my brain i guess was working was i'd see well i don't need i need prince edwards and then i'd buy them or I don't need them, so I'd buy the other ones. And so that's I think that's part of the problem, is that my brain's programmed to acknowledge the the obvious uh, royalty of the, any particular potato that I'm buying. See, you're falling into the classic English trap of just choosing the, the, the fruit or vegetable that's named after a monarch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's easily yeah. done. Potato culture, I think, is, 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 if anything, it's more developed in the uk and there are a lot of different potatoes that when i read you this list you're going to be like oh yeah i've heard of that potato so let's let's do a quick potato quiz this was not potato planned. quiz this was not planned well, like all. you did a nice theme tune at the start of the last pop quiz yet last week so i'd like some kind of theme tune from you before okay, give me a second here is the potato <laughs> that was I, I can only imagine that we're going to get fan mail demanding that we repeat the potato quiz for that theme tune alone <laughs> okay go on give me the potato quiz okay so just, it's just uh, have you heard of this type of potato before it's as simple as that i think i'm ready charlotte yes there you go long oval and waxy with a subtle flavor apparently jersey royals yes of definitely. course of course you've heard of the jersey royal it is named after a monarch and that's uh <laughs> that's good enough unmistakably sweet summery flavor best simply boiled and dressed in butter and herbs that's it's a it's a cracking uh cartoffel salad potato king edward you've mentioned so we know him marabelle mm, uh, no marabelle is apparently one of the best potatoes for mashing Thanks to its incredibly creamy texture and rich, sweet flavour. So if you like a mash, have a Maribel. I'll remember that. Maris Piper. Yes, definitely Maris Piper potatoes. Of, of course. Purple Majesty. What, are you shopping in Waitrose? Is this what? Is this the way you're <laughs> telling me that you shop at Waitrose? No, I've never heard of those. It's from Prince Charles's estate. Now, the Purple Majesty is an interesting one because we've already mentioned Peru, and Peru is the home of the potato. And of course, in Europe, when we think of potatoes, they basically all look basically the same they're sort of tan brown colors with white insides but a lot of andean potatoes are purple in the same way that the original carrot is purple orange carrots are a product of hundreds and hundreds of years of, of selective farming you're, you're blowing my mind here yeah yeah so the purple majesty is it's a purple potato looks incredible when you slice through it it's, it's but yeah it's from the andean mountains also full of antioxidants unique flavor and texture can be mashed baked or roasted it is a versatile thing the purple majesty next one russet yes russet of course it's a classic it's a classic it is the chip or wedge potato. Most chips in the UK are made from russet. Uh, very fluffy, pale yellow, and they turn golden brown when fried. And of course, that's what you need mm -hmm. in, a, in a pomace. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, one last one. V for Vivaldi. Vivaldi potatoes? Mm-hmm. 
That's not one I've particularly come across. Well, it might be one you want because the description is rich, creamy, and sweet. These potatoes taste like they've already been buttered. Mm-mm-mm. Wow. Is they called Vivaldi potatoes because they, they, they come in four seasons? <laughs> that's, 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 <laughs> Go on. Come on, listener. Appreciate. That, that's good. I didn't see that one coming. Well done. Well done. <gasps> oh, I'm a comedy fucking genius. No, past Nick. You're not a fucking comedy genius. You're an idiot. Of course that's why they're called Vivaldi Potatoes. You knew that, didn't you, listener? According to the Wikipedia page, the name was chosen as a reference to Antonio Vivaldi, since, as the potatoes are grown both in the UK and overseas, they are available during all four seasons of the year. <sighs> Pretty comprehensive potato list. <laughs> I skipped loads. That's like half of them. Still not convinced about mint sauce and beef, but again, I guess I'll just have to work it all out. One, the final question, back to Peru. How many types of potatoes do you think there are in Peru? Three, like I said. <laughs> There's big ones, small <laughs> ones, and sweet ones. You've got the first The first digit is three. 300? Uh, no. Nope. 300,000? <laughs> That's quite an extreme job. 3,800 different types of potatoes in Peru. Wow. Jesus, no. they got a lot of options. They do. A lot of options for chips. <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of potato dishes, naturally, in Peruvian cooking. Uh, it's all really good. And they're called papa as well. Papa Blanca, Papa Amarilla, uh, Paricholo. Like, it's all papa, which is nice. It's, it's fun oh, to I say quite, papa. I quite like that. I think, I think I'm going to start calling the potato. Toffel sounds quite... Yeah. It's quite quite harsh isn't it i'm just going to tr- suggest a new theme tune for the quiz then that's just gonna call me big papa <laughs> <laughs> no no i'm vetoing in this 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 is the end of the quiz no more potato quizzes <laughs> So listeners of the show will know that Nick and I would both like a beer, and we both like talking about beer, hence why we moved to Beer Nirvana in, in Franconia and Bayern. We've spoken before about how the pandemic has, has been a real challenge for, for breweries. Demand has shrunk, and production capacity has, has been stalled as well. And of course, anyone reading the news will know that the cost of living crisis is not just something that's happening to the islands of Brexit. And it is something that's become very much a global issue. So we are seeing terrifying headlines about price increases on beer. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, I mean, that's making me quite nervous, especially given how much we've celebrated the, the, the cheapness of, of beer in- <laughs> alarmingly cheap i think i called it uh when we recorded last time about beer and so yeah we're talking like the brewers are describing a price explosion not just a price rise or a price hike uh, an explosion so there are a couple of reasons for this and it's not just because they want to get paid more money far from it one of the big issues of course that everyone who has to pay a bill knows is that energy prices are are rocketing all over europe and germany is Mm. is one of the highest uh, increases at the moment. Uh, so yeah, price of energy, of course, to to make beer takes a lot of power. Uh, it isn't just chuck it in a bucket and wait till uh, twelve months and tada beer. There's a lot of electricity involved in the process these days, and of course, the cost of the raw materials. Farming is of course an integral part of beer brewing. Hops don't just grow on trees. <laughs> no, they grow on bushes. They do. They grow. They grow on. <laughs> tall vines that you see when you drive through the lovely beer land i had a moment there i was like the hops grow on trees 
I couldn't quite remember. And I realized because I drive past fields of hop producers and they've got like those quite complex um, constructions in order to get the vines to grow up them. Exactly. Like, were they trees or were they just logs? I think they're just logs. <laughs> I guess it would be a vine would be my, my way of describing it. I, I, yeah, I'm going to stick with bush. Stick with my original. <laughs> it is a climber, though, that's for sure. Uh, and so as Nick correctly describes, in this area of Germany, you're driving along and you'll see what looks like a sort of a me- medieval electricity grid <laughs> having been built. Yeah. Uh, it looks doesn't look like farming equipment uh, from first uh, first viewing. And when my mum first came to visit, she was like, what are these? And I was like, I don't know. And then three months later, I was on the train and it was just full of hops. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, this is this is how they grow hops here. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, but yeah, of course, hops and <laughs> yeah. uh, the other raw ingredients have to be grown and the cost of doing that has increased as well. So yeah, it's looking like beer drinkers in Germany are going to be facing an increase in these prices. I think you're right. It's a... Uh it's a global issue i don't know i mean it depends i suppose it depends on a lot of things whether whether supermarkets are going to be willing to cushion the blow or even mm-hmm. accept price hikes at all and i think if it goes across i know that Kronbach has already increased prices i think velton's are talking about it bitburger have discussed it too so these are like the big these are the big meaty breweries right they're the big ones and so, I don't know, I kind of feel like a lot of people, especially in Bavaria, would just take it on the chin. It's so it's so inherent in the culture that most people, like, I know I'd be willing mm-hmm. to pay a bit more if it meant maybe down the line things would be reduced. But, like, the energy crisis is, I mean, I don't, how the fuck did we get to a position where we're having an energy crisis? Like, what have the book government's been doing for the last <laughs> yeah. 30 years? I just find it, like, insane. And I, I know... Uh, obviously in britain there's energy companies that are going out of business it just it boggles the brain really uh that, that would let things get to such an extent that we'll have this problem but i, I mean, would you would you i'm sure you'd pay more for beer right yeah totally i'd be happy to pay 10 20 more because obviously coming from the uk the beer is so cheap in comparison to what we were used to back home that it feels like i'm robbing a little bit like it's, it's such a good yeah. price for such a good product. And because the majority of the beer that I buy isn't from the big breweries, I'm more often than not, I'm buying small local breweries in Franconia. And these are companies that are being run by a handful of people who have been involved in this company sometimes for generations. So I have zero problem paying them good money for a really good product. Now, if it comes to companies like Beck's or Bitburger or yeah, Kronbach, like the big internationally sold companies then yeah I'm, I'm less considerate about how their profits affect their workers because these are companies that pay their ceos hundreds of thousands if not millions of euros uh, they can afford to take a bit of a hit but if it is amendorfer down the road from me if it's spalter yeah by eagle Bagsy, like these are, are really small breweries and they have been through brewery hell through this pandemic and mm-hmm. Yeah, we can see in the numbers and statistics that it doesn't look like it's going to improve in the next year or two. The the Brauer Bund, the Association of Brewers, uh, a further decline in sales of 3 to 4% this year. 200 to 300 million litres less alcoholic beer sold in 2020. And that was a record 5.5% decrease. A 5.5% decrease for a, a product that's on such a small profit margin 
compared to what it could be. I mean, if we look at, uh, let's take like Stella Artois, a Belgian beer sold all over the world on a big markup in every single location. They're selling more than 200, 300 million litres a year and their profit margins are far, far bigger. So yeah, it's, it's really bad for small independent brewers, which is the majority of the industry. Um, here in Franconia, at least. Well, I think across Bavaria, really. Yeah. I think the government needs to step in and protect small breweries, for sure. I mean, the trend the trend has been that even before we all had to go into lockdown and the pandemic started, et cetera, et cetera, beer consumption had dropped below, I think, 100, the 100 litre mark per year. I think that's per person, 100 litres. That good, seems about right. It's a good year. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, that just seems too little for me. Um, so it, it's not necessarily all to do with the pandemic. Like people aren't drinking as much beer, but obviously people not going to restaurants and bars and stuff means that there's a bigger hit. But weirdly, and I think I think that's part of it too. People probably stopped drinking as much beer partially because of not going out and partially because yeah. the uh, the lifestyle, the health, like healthy lifestyle. I think people probably realized if we continue consuming beer at the rate we have been it's going to make the pandemic just that bit worse uh, there's only so many hangovers anyone can ever sustain in their own home and it this suggests from the statistics because the um, sales of non-alcoholic beer have gone up mm-hmm. and exports to places like china have gone up there is some sort of evening out but i know like uh shanzenbroi or um some of the cluster browerize around mm-hmm. um, Germany, these smaller sort of really old breweries, are they exporting to China or is it just the, the big boys? In some cases, sales on certain other types of beer that weren't popular before have gone up and, and, and exports have gone up for certain companies. But I just think it's uh, a situation where if small breweries start to go out of business, it's really bad because mm-hmm. you end up with the kind of landscape you have in Britain where you have, and you said Stella before, like it's a Belgian beer and I was going to interrupt you and say like in inverted commas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. Brewed, <laughs> it's brewed in Britain. And I remember that they, and I might have said this before, but they released a few, a good decade ago, they released a Stella Black and the big pitch for Stella Black was it was brewed twice as long as Stella. And an enterprising journalist asked them at the press conference, so how long is normal Stella brewed for? Mm-hmm. And they didn't want to say, because it's probably not brewed for very long, because it's a fucking awful beer. And there's so many shit lagers in, in Britain. There's loads of amazing ales, but there's loads of shit lagers. And like, when Amstel is the best thing you can get on a bar, it's very telling of how shit your beers are. Because Amstel is like, fine it's a fine beer. It's not a good beer, and it's certainly not rep- representative of, of Dutch beer or, or the lowland brewing culture, you know? But, I mean, what's the price of a, a, a pint of Amstel in the UK? Like, probably probably four, five quid. Yeah, I'd say five quid is probably average. across. I mean, obviously, yeah. the further north you go, the cheaper it will be. Well, not necessarily, not anymore. Where I'm from, it would be 650 uh, in my yeah, my village yeah. pub, that's for sure. You're not getting the same quality. Yeah. Paying six fifty for a Stella, like I mean, the only the only reason I would do that is that I know that four Stellas, I'm going to feel uh, drunk. Like it's it's an effective way to drink that speaks to my Englishness as opposed to my love for beer. Like how how economically can I get drunk? Um, and that isn't something we experience in Germany. People don't negotiate on that in the same way. We had a, we talked about Arrested mm. Development last week. So is that not like, because I, I feel like that's, because I have that instinct too. Is that not, is that not like a, a student 
sort of strategy i feel like that's where it's because I, I feel now that i certainly after after the last couple of years i want to get drunk but i want to do it drinking like good beer i don't want to do it drinking the stuff i was drinking when i lived in britain one of the, the most difficult things is going to a pub in britain now because the beers that i used to drink are just off limits i'm not going to drink tenants mm-hmm. i'm not going to drink carling not fucking not not going to drink Fosters, um, and you might go out well, snobbish, and it's like no, because it's just it's rancid, it's shit beer. Like, and if your only point of going to a pub is just to get pissed, then just drink straight vodka. <laughs> like, you might as well, just might as well. Like, why would you? Because it's not it's about as enjoyable for me. I would have said, but yeah, obviously it's about being part of a, a market that sells good products, and in the UK historically that's not the case. I mean, you mentioned some some brands there that have done very very well, made millions and millions of pounds. I'm just gonna. Shout out to Skoll uh, Lager. <laughs> that was a big one. Kestrel Super Lager. These were, these were companies that had huge turnover because their yeah, product yeah. lasts. That the chemicals in these lagers, they it means you can put it in a can and it will be fine for years and years and years. But yeah, now that we live in in the holy land. Uh, of quality of beer of course our standards have improved going back to an english pub and paying the prices that they're demanding i already found difficult but if i'm buying a product that is so much worse than what i can get in a bottle shop here for euro 20 um two mm. euro a bottle if i'm being very very expensive with myself it stings and i think it's a good thing <laughs> i'm i'm happy to be a bit of a uh, a bit hochnazig to be selective I don't have a problem with that. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah, I mean, if somebody said I was a beer snob, I'd be like, yeah, I fucking am. Like, sorry, but like in this instance, I, I, I'm putting, I'm, I'm paying a certain price for something. I want it to be good. And I don't mind, like, when it comes to ale, like that so that's what I drink exclusively when I go back to Britain because you don't really get it here. Mm. So it's kind of like the best of, the best of, um, of, of british as it were but there's some really poor ones of them as well but I, i'll drink drink local and try the like sort of different ones that they have and that's fine and it's usually a bit cheaper so i'll take i'll take that hit but i love i love lager i love like hellas i love pills i love like a nice keller beer you know and that's quite not quite a lager a keller beer but still it's in the same sort of wheelhouse something that's a bit carbonated mm-hmm. that's what i'm looking for um and I, that's that's my my preferred choice so I still, even even though the ales are available, it's not my first choice. But I, you feel, I feel faintly ridiculous going to Britain to drink German beer. So what you're looking for is just like make someone make a good lager that doesn't just have loads of hops in it and have some like chin stroke in hipster telling me why hops are the best thing yeah drink this ipa fuck (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah down with ipa none of that please (laughs) yeah yeah we finally agree (laughs) (laughs) i mean there is there is some positivity that we can see from from this the main thing that we're seeing is that there is one type of beer from one region of germany that's actually doing quite well through all of this and that is what nick has just mentioned hellas Bayerische Helles, in particular, is one beer that is doing very, very well at the moment. Phew! Yeah, this is <laughs> the good news for us as Helles drinkers in Bayern. Uh, so we have here an article from yeah from Faz uh, Frankfurt Allgemein, and the headline is Hellesford immer beliebter. Um, more and more people are, are getting on the Helles train, and this is good news. Um, so yeah, the Bayerische Hellem market is doing better. Um, 
a 14% increase in sales uh, in, in bottle shops and supermarkets over the last year. So it is, it's the big winner uh, in German beer varieties. Now, of course, that's not great news for anyone outside of Bavaria, and we are pretty <laughs> pretty focused on our home uh, when it comes to this stuff. But yeah, it's one type of beer that is doing better in these dark times uh, for breweries. So I guess we can expect to see more Lederhosen and marketing <laughs> involved in selling German beer internationally. So what you're saying is they brew beer in other parts of Germany? Apparently. Wow, I'm learning loads of stuff today. <laughs> I've tried, I've, I've tried Veltins when I was, when I was watching Schalke, but I, I thought that was from like... <laughs> Lauf under Pignitz. Oh, it's such a Irish <laughs> thing to say. What a dick move. Oh, dear. But, yeah. It's all tongue-in-cheek, listeners, and we know. Yeah. <laughs> Nick ran very, very comprehensive uh, competition that celebrated beer from all corners of this beautiful land. I've heard of Kolsch. Back off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, out one. Like, the winner wasn't even from Bavaria. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That shows that I'm impartial, at least. So, Simon, what's your favourite museum? The two that I think of the most is the, the one is the V&A, uh, Victoria and Albert mm-hmm. in London, or the British Museum. I probably have to say the British Museum is generally the, the, the coolest experience. It's got a lot of stuff in it. Yeah, I mean, that's a great that's a great museum. I actually really enjoyed the uh, Kelvin Grove up in Scotland. That's a really nice art museum. There's a few really lovely ones in Scotland, some really impressive ones. The reason I'm bringing up the question of museums, and it's interesting that you chose the british museum is uh, the origin of certain exhibits in museums in in one particular museum in in munich is under the spotlight five continents museum in munich uh, has been trying to find the origin of 50 objects in its in its collection that it believes have questionable backgrounds and may well have been stolen by uh, a german military commander during their uh, colonial times hold up yeah European museums have shit stolen from other parts of the world. I know you'd be, it's very surprising, right? That to, to hear, to hear <laughs> yeah. shocking, especially for two British people to realize these that, were all gifts, weren't they? I thought we were just looking after them for these countries. I mean, you might assume that they were gifts given how long we've held on to things like the Elgin marbles, for instance. But no, um, actually, a lot of, a lot of art, uh, work and a lot of exhibits in European museums, uh, are all under the spotlight, really. I think France is, is mm-hmm. in the process of returning certain objects. I think some German museums, I think there's a museum in Berlin, has started doing the same thing. Um, conspicuous in its absence <laughs> is the British Museum, uh, who, who just steadfastly refused to do anything about the the quite extreme amount of objects in its collection that have very suspect origins. They were literally just British people turned up, dug a hole, pulled something out and then went we're taking this home with us so uh this uh this particular museum in, in munich though the five continents museum said it had identified these 50 objects with as it said it quotes from the deutsche Welle article objects of questionable provenance i mean my instinct there is 50 is it's rookie numbers like that's not very much really like you if you look at the british museum it's like fifty thousand. if no it's got to be more than fifty thousand. Well, they've got they've got like a cavernous basement mm-hmm. with with stuff that they just don't even put on on show. So I'm sure it's well over it's well over fifty objects. But it said that it had been investigating two hundred objects at least mm-hmm. from um, its uh, Max von Stetten collection. 
since 2019 and von Stetten had been a commander in the Imperial German Army and he was stationed in Cameroon and he later donated these 200 objects to the museum and they said that some of them may have been acquired legitimately but they believe at least 50 of them were taken during uh, again in quotes punitive expeditions mm. which is I think quite a, an interesting euphemism. Yeah I've never heard that combination before punitive expedition that's yeah that's quite a scary framework linguistically yeah exactly exactly and i always find i always find this discussion about the artwork interesting because it it says a lot about this museum that they're they're actively trying to to try and define the origin of these objects trying to work it out which isn't it was no easy thing because it's not it's not like there was customs agents or people who were Mm. keeping track especially if they've been taken from an expedition that involved soldiers killing indigenous peoples there's not going to be a record necessarily uh and so but one of the the bigger problems that that has complicated this this attempt to find the the evidence of these objects is that cameroon is currently going through some turmoil and uh, that unrest has made it quite difficult to, to to go to the country but also for researchers from that country to come to munich and in fact three uh, researchers from Cameroon were denied visas uh, for Germany by the Foreign Office uh, due to what they consider what they cited at least irregularities in their travel documents. Mm. Yeah, so that's but it's it's like the attempt they're making the attempt, and I don't want to I don't want this discussion necessarily to revolve around how great Germany is for for like oh they've they're trying to do something to correct a a past transgression and the British are fucking awful because they they won't. But it does say something about the kinds of people who are running the museums that they're actively trying to give them, or at least trying to find out where these objects have come from, find out what the background is, so in, in, in case they need to return them. But also that German museums have, have returned objects in the past, whereas the British Museum just constantly ignores the, the ethical issues with their collection. And I mean, they're not just ignoring requests from other museums in other countries, they're ignoring requests from governments. Um, Greece has requested multiple times for items yeah. to be returned, and, and Britain has just been like, "Huh, what? Huh? Sorry, what? Huh? We don't, we don't speak Greek. Sorry, what?" Boris, Boris John, well, uh, Boris Johnson does speak Greek, power ancient <laughs> Greek, of course, because he likes to sort of smatter his ridiculous speeches with it. But uh, he said, and this is so like typical of the establishment to go, "Oh, it's not." It's not me that needs to make the decision. It's the British Museum. Mm-hmm. And the British Museum's gone. No, it's the Prime Minister. And so there's like this this discussion between them about whose fault it is. And there's some like obviously things like the Algar marbles are clearly meant to be in that country. But the argument always made is that oh well they're safer they're safer here than anywhere else. It's like well that's not really your choice to make and i mean those statements are normally made by white dudes in suits who happen to run the museums uh mm-hmm. yeah it's it's not it's not members of the public uh <laughs> or people who they belong to yeah and we've i mean we've had this discussion about britain and its history and and my point has always been that british historical memory is appalling and only seems to revolve around about three topics and most of them are wars but the with the the discussions that have been sparked by certainly the the toppling of the colson statue in in bristol Mm -hmm. and the questions that arose from that and it reoccurred when the the the, there was uh, several protesters had been put on trial for 
vandalism and breach of the peace and all of these things and they'd been found not guilty and the right-wing media in britain had lost its mind because obviously they were scum for uh destroying history Mm -hmm. despite the fact that no one had really outside of bristol had really known who this guy was uh we're not taught about slavery particularly in school if we're taught about empire usually it's how how good it was and oh it's we went over there and civilized these countries and there's an there's a particular irony to especially when it comes to african art cameroonian art that uh there's a clear evidence of a culture existing a very complex and interesting culture in existence before loads of white europeans rocked up with rifles and we and they're so it's such a cultured country that we stole their art and brought it back with us mm. so and and i think india is is also another location where well i mean the the queen has an indian diamond in her in a in a collection in the crown jewel but of course that's fine because we gave them railways and we get built some ports for them yeah, yeah, it's, of course. it's fine yeah it was totally it's a fair transaction of us extracting millions and millions and billions of 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 pounds worth of of uh, wealth from their country yeah and the right wing is still happy to say but where would they be if we hadn't done that this is it's disgraceful what do you think about it? i mean you said that the british museum is obviously your your favorite museum does that is that sort of do you have mixed emotions about it or i I think how do you feel about it? yeah the emotions definitely change with with awareness of course um the first few times i went to the british museum i would have been very very young and Mm. my mother would have explained to me for example this is the rosetta stone one of the one of the real attractions there that when you go to the museum, it's, it's always swarmed by people who want photos of it. And, of course, you're told what it is and the historical significance of it, but the the, the origins of how it ended up in, in London um, are not really made particularly clear at that point. There are so many wings to the British Museum. You have the Egypt wing, you have East Asian, all these different eras and histories and, and timelines. And it, it does feel kind of overwhelming. Uh, when you're a young person being sort of dragged around the museum but when you go back to it now when i go back to it now as as an adult who has a a tenuous grasp of of the reality of of british colonialism there's a lot of guilt attached to what we have and what we've kept hold of now of course when you see things like the sutton who helmet and anglo-saxon stuff then it's like okay this is fine like yeah someone someone's died along the way for this to end up where it is but it's it's not it's not murdering foreigners and stealing their shit well it's british culture isn't it and yeah i think if the british museum displaying the wealth of art and history that existed in britain is is one thing uh, but to have so many objects that are questionable in their in their collection and god knows how many more pieces in there Mm-hmm. Uh, and this, this, it just seems like I mean that's what the British Empire did. I mean there is the, the, the there is a discussion that like was the British Empire good or bad, which is such a fucking ridiculous discussion mm-hmm. to have. It's such a binary. Like there were benefit or there was benefits to the British Empire for certain people in the country. I mean, if you look at India, there were certain people, certain people in India who made out like bandits, mm. who were indigenous Indians who aligned themselves with the British and the East India Company mm. and made out very well. But it wasn't it wasn't the general population, right? So there was benefits to certain groups. Um and the same in a lot of places, it's how the British operated was that they had they had to make allies in these places, yeah. certainly to 
to, to, to have a benefit. But the fact that the debate can't even be had properly because most people don't know enough about it besides having watched Sulu over Christmas or And of course those people when you do raise when you do raise these issues about provenance and to whom these objects belong, a lot of sort of right leaning or traditionalists take it as some sort of affront to the culture. Um like you're attacking the essence of, of British culture by saying that maybe we should return these objects that aren't British culture. Well, the mere discussion. The museum would be worse off without all this stuff, that's for sure. It would be a, a lot of empty rooms. But I, I think I would feel better <laughs> uh, on a personal level if there was some sort of transparency about this. And luckily, it seems like some sort of transparency is slowly being introduced to this conversation back home. Uh, and Germany is doing better in that regard. There is... Uh, uh, but it's that thing of... And it's something I thought about for a long time is, and I've mentioned it before, that that the Second World War is the foundation of, of both modern Germany and modern Britain. Mm. And it's the guilt, the war guilt in Germany, The and it's playing out with, there's a really interesting article in The Guardian today about how that is impacting negotiations and discussions around the Ukraine and whether Germany will export weapons. And, and it's noticeable that Britain's like, and certainly Boris Johnson over the last week's been trying to save his premiership by saber rattling and going, I'm leading the, the coalition and he wants to be fucking Churchill. Anyway, I don't want to go on a massive tangent shitting on Boris Johnson because we could be here all day. Right? <laughs> but there is, it's interesting that they're like straight away, let's send weapons, let's send troops, let's burn. He's going over there this week to sort of wave a flag and, and do that, that sort of war leader shtick that seems to go down so well with a lot of British voters. Um, and in Germany's not doing that. And I think it's interesting the, that also th- seeing it through that lens that the British Museum is reluctant to return any of its objects that it's taken through questionable means, whereas Germany is actively trying to work out what bits it can send back and which bits were legitimate and which weren't. Mm. And I think that stems from this sense of victory or defeat that both countries experience. And I think it's also to do with how we're educated yeah. in Britain versus how we're educated in Germany. There's a lot of focus on the Second World War and the Holocaust and um, not just through the actual history, but through poetry, through art, through oral history in Germany. There's loads of different facets, whereas in Britain, it's anemic at best. And the, don't, the, 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 idea, the very idea of having a discussion about slavery leads to like right wingers just losing the fucking shit yeah. and the fact that uh the national trust was it national heritage i can't remember was, was announced that they were going to like sort of look into the slavery backgrounds of their of many of their um the states that they look after which is totally legitimate it's a study of history it's telling the story of our of, of the country you can't talk about britain without talking about slavery like how do you explain liverpool how do you explain bristol how do you explain explain a lot of the landed wealth in Britain mm. without slavery? Guess what? You really fucking can't. What it says is like, we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to understand the past because it makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable and it makes us not feel like we're winners and victors and heroes because the, there's a lot to be, there's a lot of shameful action. Whether we should feel ashamed about it is, I mean, it's a personal decision, I think. I don't feel ashamed personally but I feel ashamed that we don't 
educate mm-hmm. ourselves better. I mean, it's heading in the direction of Ron DeSantis in Florida introducing like bills saying that we can't discuss things that make white people feel uncomfortable. And yeah. you should feel uncomfortable if you are a British person looking into any of this stuff because, yeah, we weren't evangelists making the world a better place. The entire underlining sentiment of colonialism was to make England and Britain rich. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's it what was it was glory for. and wealth. Yeah. Whether you pull down a statue or not, or whether you rename a street or not, is I think it's a discussion for particular cities, and it's a debate we should have, and we should have it honestly. And an example would be, I just recently read um, The Anarchy, where it's a William Dalrymple book about the East India Company. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, the statues of, of Robert Clive, and I was taught at school, like Robert Clive was this sort of hero. He won the Battle of Plassey, and he was this sort of um, great figure. And he's not. He's He was a scumbag. He was a corrupt politician. He went to India, made a fortune, went back, bought a, bought a position in Parliament, uh, with, had a scandal, lost loads of money, and then went back to India and made more money. Mm. And he, he was a thug, and he was very good at killing people and fighting battles and that's that was what he was good at but like that's not discussed if you just stick up a statue and go well who's that oh that's robert clive he 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 was one of the reasons why the british had so much of india like that that isn't really taught Mm. and it's the whole picture like you can make a judgment if you like robert clive and you think he was really good and and like should have statues of him fine as long as that's based on all the facts yeah like, but if it's not, then what the fuck are we doing? And what I've what, something that's happened recently that really gave us heart, and I'd, I'd be curious to see um, what your opinion is. I quite like to go to the British Museum because um, uh, Vice World News, in conjunction with a, a group of historians and app developers, have created this um, app called Unfilter History, which is you can go to the British Museum and you can it's got an augmented reality feature where you put the camera up. And it'll look at certain objects and tell you the backstory of them. So things like the Parthenon marbles, uh, the Rosetta Stone that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a um, statue from Easter Island. I, I, apologies, I can't pronounce the the name. The is the Amar, Amaravati marbles, and there's different different loads of different things that they've they've highlighted, and they could tell you a really visual and audio based story about these objects and how they came to be in the British Museum. And it's interesting, the reaction to it is obviously the reaction we talked about, which is like, oh, you're doing down Britain. It's like, no, it's the full story, yeah, yeah. man. Like, it's the full story. Like, that's okay. So would you, I mean, I'm assuming you would go on a tour and, 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 and use this yeah, app. Yeah, 100%. I think, although I'm, I'm certain I'm going to learn things that are going to make me feel pretty bad about the reality of the situation, but those those 10 items, uh, they've turned into a 10 uh, ten part podcast series like those are some of the most iconic moments uh, iconic items in the British Museum and of course we should know how they ended up on that little piece of London um, so yeah I think it's absolutely fantastic that the Vice in conjunction uh, with Dentsu Webb Chutney have created this uh, and allow people to to get a flavour a reality of these items because if you're just 
fantasizing about holding on to these things because it's the right thing to do for for the protection of them that's how we end up with shit like brexit like people just thinking that oh yeah we're the ones that can take care of this we'll preserve it and it's like these people from these countries from all over the world all over empire they deserve their items back to to celebrate their history culture and achievements and it's, it's mm-hmm. bullshit so yeah i'm i definitely would love to go back to the british museum and try out this uh yeah augmented reality is definitely a, a smart move uh, instead of just publishing leaflets uh, so yeah well done vice like more of this i mm. think not not just in this in this in the the scope of telling the the darkest stories but just in general like there's so much there's so much history that isn't taught and we've got all these this technology we can use to teach these sort of vibrant stories like you could have the same thing for statues i mean how many people have statues in their towns and cities that have no idea who the hell these people are and you just have a device that you can hold up and it gives you the story of the people and it and yeah some of it might be horrifically negative but at the same time that's the story you know Okay, so one of the clear identifiers in the modern world of being a really, really cool person is having a tattoo, and it's definitely a sign of mass individualism. Uh, I have a few, uh, so that means I am super cool. Nick has none, so he's a total dork. (laughs) Yeah, I'm such a loser. But there is one tattoo idea that Nick has had for a long time that I... I just want to talk about it because I've never really understood it and I'm going to give him another chance to explain it to me. So, Nick, what was the tattoo? or is, Do you still want this tattoo? What is it? What was it? And why? So, it's the, the tattoo I always wanted to get was the logo for the 7-Eleven convenience stores. And, <laughs> and I don't know... It's such a weird thing. Okay, sorry. <laughs> no, Carry no, on. I mean, I don't... I was, going to say, I was going to say I don't know why I wanted it, but I do. It's aesthetically pleasing. I like the colour scheme, the font... Like the, the the classic one from like the sort of eighties is the one I'm thinking about because I think they changed it recently. Yeah, that's been updated. And I didn't I didn't actually think about it until I think we had the dis- this discussion on here a few was it a couple of years ago? Jesus, we've been doing this podcast for years. <laughs> My God, um, yeah. I, we you you sort of went. Why would you want like a company logo on your arm? And I hadn't I hadn't <laughs> thought about it. I hadn't even like reflected on the fact that it's like. I'm just branding myself with a corporate logo. You might you might get free um, stuff from them if you did it, I guess. Like, that's <laughs> one small positive there. Go to the US and go, eh, eh, you seen this tattoo? Do you want to give me a free coffee? Definitely get a job. <laughs> it's a discussion that I've had with some some students, actually. They, they were asking about if I had a tattoo, and I said I didn't but I really wanted to get like a sleeve with like certain images on it. And I had this, I have this idea of what I'd get. But then I also said that if I get a tattoo now, it is just uh, evidence that I'm going through a midlife crisis. <laughs> and so I can't actually, I don't think I'm going to get a tattoo. Certainly not going to get a Seven Eleven tattoo because I'd have to admit to myself that I'm, I don't know. It feels that like you've got tattoos that you've already got. And if you add to them, you are a tattooed person. And that's fine. Like, if that makes sense. If you had tattoos in your 20s and then got tattoos later in life, rock fine. But I think deciding in your late 30s, early 40s to get a tattoo is basically just like my version of getting a bright yellow Porsche <laughs> or like learning to ride a motorbike or something like that. 
So, I mean, I, I wouldn't think I wouldn't think anything of it if 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 you or any of my non-tattooed friends suddenly went and got tattoos. I would mm. I wouldn't be judgmental unless they were shit. <laughs> if you go and get a bad tattoo, yeah. badly done, yeah. then yeah, I'm going to judge it. That's fair enough. But I think we've now. I mean, yeah, not all my tattoos are good. I'm not I'm not a tattoo snob who's only ever had the best. Like I've had some shit tattoos done, and some of the bad ones are the ones that mean the most. But yeah, I, I think there's no age limit. Like if if my if my mum like I'm going to get a tattoo, I'd be like, okay, that's it's a weird choice because you're pretty conservative. But yeah, go for it. If it means something, if it speaks to your history, then I think that's fine. But if you just like went and picked something out of a book, I'm gonna get a tribal tattoo, skull and crossbones. One of mine's tribal. It's not like Celtic tribal. But yeah, I, if someone says, "Oh, everyone with tribal tattoos is a dick," then like I fall into that category. <laughs> I think I've said that a number of times. Um, <laughs> no, 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 I wouldn't say that at all. But I think it was, it was always interesting to me that you wanted a corporate logo, and. What's really interesting about the 7-Eleven logo is that you've mentioned it's had different permutations. So the new one is 2013 to now. There was one in the 80s that I think is the classic one that you'd like. 86 to to now is still used as well. There was one in the 70s. There was one in the 60s. There was one in the 50s. There was one in the 40s. But there's one from 1927 to 1946. Ooh, I didn't know about that. Which I think you need to look at. have a quick googly on on that. Is that just the black and white one? Oh, no, no. Yeah, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah, that's pretty awful the one that says totem on it yeah <laughs> yeah well that's that's what 7-eleven was before it was called 7-eleven it was totem services yeah i'm not gonna uh, get that one <laughs> it's got it's got a yeah. totem pole in it well i, I mm. think i don't think you should get any of them because of that reason this is sort of cultural appropriation at the essence of the logo so yeah sorry to ruin no, that i think you, there's no but, danger i was just thinking you said that like if your mom got one and i was like well maybe there is a point like I can't get it between now and my mid fifties, but if I get it in my late fifties, early sixties, then I'm just a, like an eccentric old man, on her with my withered, withered, elasticated skin. That's one of the big downsides. Uh, your skin won't take it as well. It also hurts more. Really, uh, the older you get, the so more. So it just means I'm harder. Yeah. It just means I'm, I'll be like Simon. I'm tougher than you. Look at me get this tattoo. <laughs> You might also just pass out. <laughs> that happens. Just makes it easier for me. Though. I mean, yeah, the pain is is all relative, and like different people, it's, uh, it hits them harder. But um, there is a reason that we're talking about tattoos, and it does tie into Germany as well. It ties into the whole of the EU because the EU uh, has now introduced really problematic laws uh, for tattoo artists. And that is that most, the majority of coloured inks uh, have now been banned under EU law. And one tattoo artist described this as like taking the flour from a bakery. Um, It is a a very, very key thing. All of my tattoos are all black work. I don't have any colour at all on me. Um, It's just a choice. But when I see a beautiful, like vibrant colour tattoo, there is a part of me that's quite jealous uh, because they can be absolutely fantastic. And so now a lot of tattoo artists are being forced to only work in, in grayscale, uh, in, in black ink. And that's, yeah, really problematic. If you've built up a clientele that knows you for like pop art stuff or, um, new wave tattoos, they're all color based. Uh, any sort of modern tattoo style has color in it normally. Uh, so yeah, it's really stripped a lot away, a lot of options away. Did they give a reason why they decided to do that? Yeah. I didn't really know much about this, even though I am tattooed. When I ended up in hospital, 
I was asked by every single doctor who who saw me with my top off, like where I had my tattoos done. And there was a part of me that's like, oh, they're interested in my tattoos. And it became very, very clear that they just wanted to know which country because different countries had different laws on the quality of ink. And so some of my tattoos, the ones done in America, they weren't very happy about because they could contain components that would be problematic for certain scans on a medical level. And so the EU has come out and said that certain chemicals which have been used in inks are hazardous. Um, some of them are linked to cancer, uh, reproductive difficulties, and skin irritation. So, yeah, skin irritation I can live with, but the other two are pretty fucking scary. As well as tattoo inks, this is permanent makeup. Uh, of course, permanent makeup is, is a pretty big industry. Mm-hmm. People having lip liner done, uh, eyebrows, um, all sorts of cosmetic things can be permanently done and that's also been hit so yeah this was decided in december 2020 uh, and they've been given a year to get up to speed with this but it's been really really difficult for tattooers because now if you want to use colored inks you can get them but they have to be supplied by certain providers under strict eu legislation and of course what that means is they are five times the price of traditional colors Yikes. um so yeah, if you do want a colour tattoo, you've either got to pay a lot more, your artist is going to make less money doing it if you aren't paying a lot more, or you have to go outside of the EU uh, to get your colour ink done. Well, that's the thing. I guess it will cr- maybe increase travel for people who want to get tattoos to the UK. Maybe. Because like, I'm, obviously the, the, I'm assuming they won't have that law in place. No, they'll skirt around that one. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's in their interest to not do it. But I mean, this is an industry that's been hit so hard tattoo artists aren't angestellt they don't have fixed contracts with fixed positions Mm -hmm. every tattoo artist unless you are the owner of the business is a freelancer of course there's a lot of benefit you can see a lot of the tattoo artists i follow online will be doing weekends in zurich and then some time in madrid in the summer like there is a lot of freedom attached to it but yeah there's no fixed income um, and so a lot of tattoo artists have really had to struggle through this because it's only recently they've been allowed to go back to work under very, very strict yeah. uh, Svaigi plus regal, like test before, plus mask, plus this and that. Industry has just been hit very, very hard the last few years. Uh, so I have massive amounts of uh, of empathy for these, these poor artists because they are artists. I think a lot of people who aren't interested in that culture can be very flippant mm-hmm. about oh it's not an important thing it's it's just this it's just that but yeah a good tattoo artist is an artist and they deserve to be paid well and to have some form of security available to them if they work hard yeah they should be able to make good money mm. a good tattoo artist is a couple of hundred euros an hour at least it does it does sort of I'm just, this might sound quite brexity that's not <laughs> my intention but it seems like a bit of a, a bit nanny state doesn't it oh god <laughs> i'm so fucking hell i sound like gb news <laughs> but like, my, i mean my personal position is it's, if it's your fucking skin you can do what the fuck you want with it and if you know the risks then you know the risks and that's fine and like if you own if if you own one thing in your life it's your own body like it's yours yeah like you should be able to choose how like if it was a case that you got a tattoo that emitted chemicals that would be dangerous to other people like or perhaps could be some kind of um transmission could occur i'd understand that but it just does seem like a rather unnecessary approach with regards to like the things you could be making laws on doesn't seem to be 
really necessary to make a fucking law about it. So especially especially one that puts loads more money into the hands of already quite wealthy chemical companies. <laughs> this this is my issue. I don't have any problem with the legislation to protect people because yeah, anything linked to cancer, yeah, that should be yeah. avoided uh, and and people should be informed about it. But the fact that this is is just opening up a market of a small number of companies pro- profiting to an extreme level compared to what they should have, that's problematic. And you're not just taking away like one or two colours. You are taking away an infinite spectrum of options mm-hmm. away from artists that want to utilise them. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of amazing black and grey work out there and it's my favourite type of tattoos. But people are now hamstrung into do- not being able to do what they're capable of doing as an artist on yeah. people that are willing to volunteer and to pay for this art to be applied on their skin. I suppose there's an argument that says like you want to reduce uh, just from a purely economic perspective, you want to reduce the uh, the levels of cancer because, and if, if the stats are right, there's something like, does it say here 54 million people in Europe have a tattoo out of four, a population of 450 million. Like, you don't want to burden the um, healthcare systems of countries with cancer patients if you can, if it's avoidable. I get that there might be an argument from that perspective, but at the same time, like we've got a lot of insurances in Germany. There's a lot of like people paying private insurance. There's a lot of health insurance, at least. I mean, if you're doing this to protect people from cancer, then how about? banning cigarettes in the european union <laughs> that's a fucking good point <laughs> like 54 million people have tattoos it's got to be 100 million people smoking cigarettes probably maybe more most of them most of them are french <laughs> <laughs> those 100 percent cause cancer uh, and at the moment there are just links to cancer on some of these inks so yeah control the ones that we know but just banning an, an entire spectrum of inks because they they are linked to all these issues uh yeah let people have a bit more free will i said so yeah i wonder well maybe things will change we'll we'll, we'll we'll keep track but you better believe listener that we'll update you with any any tattoo news what i will say is it effectively ends my dream of having a 7-eleven tattoo that was already waning uh due to the uh the points i already made but it means i'm definitely not getting one now <laughs> So if you do have an idea that you think would work well for Nick... Stop trying to get the listeners to tattoo me. This is horrendous. You do this every time we talk about tattoos. You open the door to the listeners going like, oh, you should get a tattoo of a penis on your forehead. It's like, stop it, man. You can get Conrad Adenauer. Have the best German. (laughs) Don't even know where to go with that. Hello zusammen. That brings us to the end of the show. If you're enjoying the podcast, why not give us a rating on iTunes? Come on, I keep begging you for ratings on various different bits of software. Don't leave me hanging. Or Simon hanging. Or both of us hanging, in fact. Uh, It can really, really help us and uh, help us climb up those uh, iTunes charts, which is obviously what every podcaster wants. There's also uh, now a star rating on Spotify, which I know I appreciate. It's currently going through some... uh, troubles shall we say but we're just a humble podcast looking for listeners so check us some stars on there if you're a spotify user and you feel so inclined retweet us share a link or post with the hashtag decades from home or lowercase on twitter or instagram you can also support the podcast by going to ko-fi.com 
slash decades from home and contributing to keep us, well, I guess now stocked in uh, recording software so that Simon can record numerous new exciting theme tunes to the various segments that are going to now clearly need theme tunes. As ever, if you have any questions, feedback, or maybe an article or topic you'd like us to cover, you can tweet Simon on at Decades From Home, and you can tweet me at 40% German. You can also get us on 40%German at gmail.com. If you have time, take a look at 40%German.com. Weekly articles are up every Saturday. All that's left to say is thanks, and bis zum nächsten Mal. Tschüss! Potato, potato. <laughs> that did not go well. <laughs>